We would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which RMIT University stands. We respectfully recognise Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. Hello and welcome to Undercover. My name is Amy Ross and I'm Freya O'Donnell. Today we will be presenting episode 5 and we will hear from our reporters Paddy Grinlay, Ethan Dean and Jordan Zock. On this episode of Undercover, we're taking a look at why girls are dropping out of sports, the effects of coral bleaching, media training in the AFLW, Dungeons and Dragons therapy and the urban heat island effect. Australia is a sporting nation, so much so that we put our children into sport at such a young age. But research has shown that girls are more likely than boys to drop out of sports once they hit their teenage years. Amy Ross has the story. Don't let her get it. Some time. Eyes up, eyes up. Both boys and girls alike adore playing sport and getting active, but there is a noticeable difference about the number of girls who stay in sport compared to the number of boys. Ausplay data from 2017 indicates that girls are almost as likely to play sports than boys. However, as they grow up, women are less likely to participate in sport than men are. The Suncorp Australian Youth and Confidence report in 2019 found that nearly 50% of girls turn their back on sport at age 17. I spoke to Professor Rochelle Imey, the Director of PASI, Physical Activity and Sports Insight. And she said that the teenage years are an interesting transitional life stage and a lot of what affects girls staying in sport relates to what girls want to do in their leisure time and what they enjoy doing. Sport is quite competitive um, and traditional club-based sport has its competitive competition formats and there's not really a lot of opportunities yet in terms of a lot of the girls want to play with their friends and, yes, you're still trying to get the the ball in the in the goals or or in the hoop or whatever it is, but not such a focus on winning. Um, whereas that's often, um, you know, boys still a lot of boys still want to have that that strong competitive focus. But a lot of the girls just want to play with their mates and have fun. Nowadays, there's a lot more opportunities for girls to participate in sport, but not that long ago it was a different story, and now contributes to the problem of girls dropping out of sport. I did some research recently on uh, women and girls playing male-dominated sports. So obviously for this generation of youngsters, there's a lot of opportunities for them to play. When I was a kid, I wasn't able to play footy. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities. And we've got increased numbers in male-dominated sports, but we know that we've got lower retention of those women and girls. So sometimes their experience is not that great. And that can relate to a whole range of different culture and gendered norms, society and what they think that women and girls should play. And sometimes their experience... Uh, it's not that great. If you don't have a good experience, you're not going to come back. There's also things uh, like uniform, which can sometimes be off-putting. Um, sometimes a commitment gets more, so you might have to train twice a week now uh, and then game day, so it's a lot more time commitment. Um, so there's a whole range of, of, of different factors. Eyes up. <laughs> Emily Noddle has coached both boys and girls in a variety of sport. But one thing she has noticed when coaching is that girls lack a confidence and often need more support than boys do. The boys don't need as much reassurance and encouragement 
So when I think of the boys team I coached was under 12s and I look at where those guys are now in kind of under 16s level and they've all obviously gone away, done a lot of practice. They're not afraid to try new things with their friends and it's ended up with a lot of them having improved their skills so much. Whereas with some of the girls, it's like they always need a lot of reassurance from their coaches and a lot of support from their friends to try new things and to be to give 100% at training. Ready? Okay. Ready? 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 Three, Three, two, one, fellas! Emily is on the women's section committee at Camboa Hockey Club and says that they are constantly working to improve the experience for women and girls. Keep talking, Matilda, that's good. Keep so we're them. part of the Hockey Victoria Women and Girls Round every year. So we always try to host a couple of events on that weekend specifically to recognise women in the club. It's really important to have visible role models, especially at our club. We do have some really elite level players. On a more day-to-day basis, I think having female coaches is really good for the girls' teams. That I know that's been an emphasis in the junior section. The Girls Make Your Move campaign by the Australian government has found that girls experience more barriers than boys do that prevent them from being physically active. Their research has identified the fear of being judged or ridiculed as a key barrier for young women wishing to be physically active. Jamie Noda played netball for nine years before retiring at the age of 17. Most of my friends stopped playing and it's very common that after high school, like the leagues get a lot smaller and don't have your usual team and it, there's like almost like a pressure to stop it's just like once you get to year 12 you stop. Chloe Marlin started water polo at age 11 and eventually progressed to a national level but she says you have to be extremely good at the sport to continue playing. If you're not good enough to go pro or go international you kind of don't really have another choice unless you play social. Chloe thinks it's harder for girls to stay in water polo as boys and men are better at sticking to a social competition compared to the women. I think it's, it's harder for girls. It's a bit more competitive, I guess, because you sort of have to either commit fully to it and make it one of your top priorities or you don't really have another choice when you, sort of, when you hit 18 or 19 years old. Injury is another barrier holding back people from continuing sport. Ella Harwood started playing tennis when she was eight, but she had to give it up because of an injury. I have extra cartilage in my knee. And because of the stop and start, like the really kind of jostled movements that come with playing tennis, um, the cartilage would get like lodged in my knee and it like, it hurt. It wasn't fun and I would have had to get surgery to remove it. But I just, I wasn't that good at tennis, so it wasn't worth it. Girls are just as active as boys are. But why are we continuing to see girls dropping out of sport at a much higher rate than their male counterparts? Professor Aimee thinks that we can combat this by just doing one thing by being nice. Regardless of skill, of age, of gender, of race, you know, if everyone, from everything, from the coaching to the culture to the programs to to everything, if everyone was just sort of nice to people and we just need to know why people play and, and make it fun and enjoyable for them and then they'll continue. The Great Barrier Reef suffered another major bleaching event over the summer as climate change's effects continue to be felt across the country. Paddy Grinlay reports on how a new study in reef communities indicates that these disasters don't just affect the environment, but our emotions as well. Fire, flood.
These are the sounds we associate with climate change in Australia, the very real results experienced every year by far too many in this country, from Ipswich to the Blue Mountains to Gippsland. It's an obvious indicator. But perhaps what hasn't been as obvious are the effects on our mental health and on our emotions. Awesome. Have you been to the Great Barrier Reef? Been once, and I think I was about 13 years old, so... Yeah, but, um, the, that's the yeah, voice of Dr. I can, I can sort of... And what you can hear is me struggling with the maintenance of our Zoom call. She's worked for around a decade on social and ecological sciences in northern Australia and in the Pacific. Her research has focused in particular on the social and emotional impacts of climate we change. We often talk about climate change as an environmental issue, but it's actually much bigger than that. It's a health issue. Um, it's about people's mental and physical well-being. And I don't think we're really there yet in terms of that broader societal discussion. Her speciality, which she spoke to me about, is the almost radio jingle friendly term reef grief, first covered comprehensively by Dr Nadine Marshall in 2019, a project in which Dr Benham was heavily involved. But reef grief had been showing up as early as 2017, as she explains. So CSIRO has a big survey that they run every few years that looks at several thousand residents in the Great Barrier Reef and also asks um, people who are visiting the reef and uh, people who are working on the reef about a number of issues about reef management. And one of the questions that we asked in that survey in 2017 was um, for people to respond to this question about when they hear about coral bleaching, do you feel depressed? The responses to that question helped influence her understanding of ecological grief, or in this specific instance, reef grief, as related to coral bleaching. So we started to identify this signal about reef grief that people were actually concerned about the reef in a way that was affecting their emotional well-being but that's just one um, just one indicator or one dimension and so this research is trying to investigate that in a bit more detail. You would have heard Dr Benham just mention some new research now that's a significant new project she's just undertaken with funding from the Australian Research Council she'll be exploring how Queensland coastal communities cope with the grief caused by environmental losses coral bleaching While her research will continue until 2025, she's already discovered the breadth of issues caused as part of ecological grief. We did do, we had a bit of preliminary research funding to do some early interviews just with people to kind of pilot the questions. And one of the things that came up out of that was that um, it's not just about grief, it's also about other emotions like worry. So I think you, you brought up anxiety and concern for the future as well. And anger and frustration about the fact that we haven't been able to do anything about it yet, really. Um, so I think it's it's beyond just grief. It's also about all of those other kind of feelings that are sort of tied up with it. I wanted to see, or hear, eco-grief in action. So I spoke to a pair of Year 10 high school students, Layla and Emily, about their emotional reactions to climate change. What I found are reactions just like Dr. Benham describes. And so it is kind of just like this fear and grief and loss for all of the lands that is being completely like lost and devastated and all people's like homes that are being lost globally. And it can be, especially when I'm like in the midst of like reading headlines and reading articles, I can, I can feel it in my chest. I don't know how else to describe it, but I can feel it physically. That voice belongs to Layla, a Queenslander who only recently had school closed and classes moved online as torrential rain flooded much of northern Victoria. And they're just grateful it wasn't worse. Layla's response to their eco-grief was to join the school strike for climate movement last year. 
And when I spoke to Emily, who is an organiser for the same movement, she describes a similar emotional reaction, one that's led her to hand out climate scorecards at polling places on election day. Every time I see something on the news, whether it be the floods or it be the extreme heat wave in India and Pakistan, I think I always feel very, very disappointed. Disappointed in the nation's leaders, my country, and then also globally what we're doing, especially as very privileged people. I think I always feel a little bit of a sense of guilt. I don't know why, but I always think, oh, I haven't had my house destroyed by floods and I'm not dying of heat stroke. So like, am I caring enough that should that be happening at all? And am I doing enough? These two are likely included in the 82% of young people who believe climate change will diminish their quality of life. That's according to a 2019 reach-out survey of 14 to 23-year-olds. The survey also found 80% were also anxious about climate change. And this is from a survey now three years out of date. The sheer emotional impact is a handful for young people, and some researchers have even coined the phrase pre-traumatic stress, consisting of negative emotions felt before the fallout of climate change. But Dr. Benham says recent climate-influenced disasters reveal we're feeling the fallout now rather than in the future. The concept of pre-traumatic stress in, in relation to climate change is kind of fairly new, so it's only really cropped up in the last few years. I think more likely before that we were talking more about anticipatory grief. So I think there is some of that, but I think we're also facing grief as it is already. So I think we've got anticipatory grief, but we've also got, we've got the grief of things that are actually happening now. And I think that's probably what makes it more concrete. So what do we do about it? Well, Dr. Benham says that climate grief is best dealt with through networks related to place, such as workplaces or community centres or even like-minded activist groups, rather than the age-old dinner table discussion where disagreement is likely to crop up. She says that every discussion around the topic gives an opportunity for those affected to feel supported. It really goes back to forming those networks. Um, and I think even putting it on the agenda, even saying the words, I have a lot of conversations with people where when they hear about the work that I'm doing on ecological grief, they say, oh my God, this is putting words to something that I've been thinking about, but I didn't know that other people were also thinking about it. So part of it, I think, is just having those conversations so that you don't feel so alone, because it's not necessarily something that we talk about a lot, but I think a lot of people actually do think about it. Having that sense of support and that you're not alone in thinking about these issues is probably the most important thing at that kind of individual level. This is Paddy Grinlay reporting for Undercover. Dungeons and Dragons has long been misrepresented as the domain of outcasts and the antisocial. But what happens when someone subverts that narrative? Ethan Dean takes a look at one dad from the ACT using Dungeons and Dragons to help children with disabilities develop socially. Warning. This story contains brief mentions of violence and suicide. Until recently, if you searched for a news story about Dungeons and Dragons, you'd probably come across something like this. Tonight we begin with a story about make-believe adventure and real-life violence. One case, the parents were actually saw their child summon Dungeons and Dragons demons into his room before he killed himself. This medieval fantasy world is so detailed, so real, that some say it has caused kids to kill in the real world. Psychiatrists are warning that the game is taking some children too far into the realm of dark and violent fantasy. There is no escape from the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. 
More commonly referred to as D&D, the tabletop role-playing game fueled by imagination, improvisation and chance has come a long way since the moral panic of the early 80s. Thanks to the increasing popularity of fantasy-themed media and the inclusion of D&D in huge properties like Netflix's Stranger Things, the hobby has exploded into the mainstream. Parent company Wizards of the Coast recently reported their most successful financial year to date, generating over $1.3 billion in revenue off the back of a 33% increase in the sale of D&D products. Wizards of the Coast aren't the only ones profiting from their products, however. The murmurs you're hearing in the background is Dungeons & Flagons, a weekly event held in popular gaming bar for Fortress Melbourne. Right now, 10 professional dungeon masters are running games for around 60 newcomers to the hobby. They work for Masters of Alchemy, one of a number of businesses that sells professionally run games of Dungeons & Dragons curated by experienced players. But it's not just entertainment that D&D is being used for. Father of three, Ian Bennett, started his business in 2020 after picking up the hobby and realising the positive impact it was having on his own kids. I really, really enjoyed it and almost immediately became a dungeon master to my son. And so we, I worked out that it was making him and his friends talk better and communicate better. And I went, okay, this is this this could help. And then a few things happened in our lives and I've moved forward with this enterprise, which has gone from a side hustle to a full-on company. That company is Dice for Diversity, through which Ian and a few other dungeon masters use D&D to help disabled and neurodivergent kids develop their social and communication skills. Ian and his team run carefully structured and supported sessions of D&D with the aim of giving these children transferable experiences and skills that they can use outside of their adventures in everyday interactions. What we're doing is different to what other people are doing because we've got a set program and everyone who's part of the groups gets to utilize that program, which is it's very specific of what we're trying to do. In broader terms, we are using Dungeons and Dragons as a platform to provide genuine conversations so they can practice those conversations in a safe environment and they can learn teamwork and they can learn what the community is about and how to do good things in the community. No, 90% of our people are autistic. We don't want them to not be autistic, but we just want to give them the skills to be able to communicate better so they can get their needs met. Ian started Dice for Diversity in late 2020, hiring out scout halls and small venues to run what few games he could. Since then, he's experienced massive success with the business and now has a team of people that help him run 17 groups a week with no signs of slowing down. We're, we're purpose writing our story now, which will take people from level one to level 20 that is the plan and there's a whole big epic adventure that they're going to do but part of that is they're going to learn teamwork and they're going to learn better social skills and how to address people properly and how to negotiate and do all the things that we need to do as adults those kids already involved have responded with great enthusiasm thanks to ian's hide the veggie style approach what we provide them leaves them wanting more they're really interested in coming back and finishing the story and advancing their stuff. But most of the time, they don't know they're doing any sort of learning. They're just there going, oh, cool, we're just doing D&D. As an NDIS support coordinator and mother of two neurodivergent boys, Elizabeth Hickey says Dice for Diversity is a welcome arrival in the space as a less traditional option for this kind of support particularly for young men. It's also a very good fit for young men. There are heaps of groups out there for girls. Like you can throw together a, a social group for crafting or for all of uh, a, a, a girl's pampering session, that sort of thing. But for, for teenage males specifically, there is very little out there in the world around this social stuff that's not sport. 
Elizabeth says this lack of diversity in support options centred around social skills and the focus on sporting activities has made it hard for her to find options that suit both her clients and her kids. Her youngest son has been participating in diversity since its start and it seems to have finally given him a suitable option. Neither of my boys want to be outside running around. They're more content to be around small groups of people. They would consider themselves both nerds um, and gamers and that sort of thing. So things like diversity um, and Dungeons and Dragons is more about that small group, core group thing where you don't have to be huge into lots of friends, lots of people and losing is not the end of the world. Elizabeth Elizabeth says that Dice for Diversity has provided her son with a massive boost in his ability to communicate and a close group of friends outside of school. But it's not just the kids that are getting something from the community that Dice for Diversity is building. The parents who are around and we're interacting, we're meeting with different people as well and we're all sharing our own journeys. So not only are the kids benefiting, but it's a whole different group of parents that get to join together that would never have connected. This has been Ethan Dean for Undercover. With August marking the commencement of the seventh season of the AFLW and the first season with all clubs to have an associated women's team, the media pressure on the players is rising rapidly. Freya O'Donnell reports on the AFLW's transition into the media spotlight. Since the emergence of the AFLW in 2017, there has been a huge push to expand the women's competition and gain a larger audience. But what is being done to support these girls and their transition into the spotlight? I spoke to senior content producer at Hawthorne Football Club, Jackson Payne, to discover how the Hawks handled the emergence of their first AFLW team this year and how he believes the girls are dealing with the sudden pressure. It's definitely a, a very quick turnaround, I guess, from these girls who are just playing with their junior clubs or at under 18 level and then all of a sudden they're thrust into you know, doing, doing partnership videos for us like we had our girls doing a KFC video the other day that obviously gets gets sent out to our um, you know thousands and thousands of followers and things like that and there's there's obviously the scrutiny that comes with that as well. I asked Jackson how Hawthorne prepare these young girls for the media spotlight. Here's what he had to say. A little bit awkward in terms of how much time we get with those girls but certainly they've already had a taste of what um, media looks like um, and we're very we're very sure to sort of um, educate them on what questions they might be asked in an upcoming interview and how they would go about answering them. Um, again, getting them to align with the club messaging and um, helping, helping the club's brand grow, especially in the women's space. Hawthorne Football Club inaugural AFLW player Bridget Deed has had her fair share of media exposure in the last few weeks. Previously being picked up from NAB League, Eastern Rangers and only having played a few games for the AFLW Hawks in 2021, the spotlight has been very bright for her. I caught up with Bridget D to discover how her transition into the spotlight is going. Yeah, obviously a pretty big adjustment. Obviously there was a lot of media when it all first happened, but since then it's settled down. A couple other girls have taken the spotlight, so that has been nice. Bridget seems to have managed to keep a cool head during games since entering back into the VFLW team after her signing announcement. Coming in, obviously there was a bit of pressure because everyone might have been thinking big things, but I knew just to go out there, play footy, try and enjoy it. After asking Bridget about the media training she has received at Hawthorne, despite her comfort in front of the mic, she informed me she had received none before being signed on. We've done a bit at Rangers, but that's kind of been more of a joke. Um, no real expectations, just don't do anything silly. 
Jackson Payne and the Hawthorne Football Club have shown to have a clear understanding of the division between men and women in footy. When you're a, a boy that's just been drafted, you'll come in and there'll be a, um, you know, a structure and a club culture that's been in place for a long period of time. The level of novelty around the AFLW competition means that you really do have to pave your own way. In saying that, Hawthorne have acknowledged they are going to make mistakes in the following years due to the new media attention a women's team can bring. We know that we're going to make mistakes throughout this period. It's going to be a real learning phase for us, especially in, in year one. With the women's game, there's so many more elements that come into play um, that ultimately only come through learning experience. But we're really, really keen to have standards where our AFL and our AFLW teams are, are set on a really even keel across the club. Despite the contradictions between inaugural AFLW Hawk Bridget Deed and Hawthorne senior content creator Jackson Payne around the sustained media training for up-and-coming superstars, ultimately looking forward, equal opportunities for men and women in footy seem like a swift possibility. Jackson has noted how excited the club is for the new opportunities the women's team brings them this year and they look positively towards the future. As Melbourne's urban sprawl continues, natural vegetation is being replaced by concrete and asphalt to account for the growing populations. This, however, increases the effects of the urban heat island. Jordan Zock has more on what this issue means for Melbourne's growth corridor. In the volcanic plains of Melbourne's outer western suburbs sits one of the fastest growing residential areas in Australia. The city of Wyndham has seen rapid urban sprawl and people migration over the past 10 years, with vast housing estates and off-the-plan homes populating the area. While residents move into brand new spacious homes, developers and planners have come under scrutiny for a lack of green cover and tree canopy present in these new estates. Barren streetscapes resembling dark concrete jungles are common, and homes having little to no established garden or green cover to provide shade and cooling. This is of particular concern during summer, where temperatures smash through the ceiling, leading to an increase in surface temperatures. These increases in temperatures are due to a phenomenon called the urban heat island effect. But what is the urban heat island effect? So the urban heat island effect speaks to the way that urban areas can increase the ambient air temperature above what would be expected just because of the weather due to the built up nature of the city. What happens is our urban areas absorb heat during periods of high heat into buildings, into roads, into those hard surfaces, and then release that heat over time. That was Joe Hurley, Associate Professor in the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. Joe's research focuses on urban greening as a challenge for our cities. This led to his involvement in the 2018 studies, Urban Vegetation, Urban Heat Island and Heat Vulnerability Assessment in Melbourne, and the urban vegetation cover analysis. So we wanted to investigate in more detail the role that urban vegetation plays in mitigating the urban heat island effect and reducing its impacts and understand the spatial distribution across the city of both vegetation uh, and urban heat so that we could begin to look at vulnerability to heat across the urban landscape, particularly looking at where vulnerable populations live and how that relates to areas of, of high heat uh, and low vegetation. The findings revealed a bleak picture for not only Wyndham, but the majority of the outer western suburbs. 
The study found that newly urbanised areas of Melbourne, including Tarnit, were at greater risk of heat vulnerability due to a lack of tree canopy and vegetation cover. Wyndham's percentage of tree canopy cover barely registered at 4.2% when compared to other LGAs such as the Yarra Rangers at 36.7% and Nilambuck at 31.1%. The lack of canopy cover directly correlates to an increase in land surface temperatures, with Wyndham experiencing on average a 9.18 degree difference in land surface temperatures compared to baseline land surface temperatures. But how and what does that figure mean exactly? So this is a daytime measure where we look at the temperature in baseline areas, that's surrounding areas that haven't been disrupted by urban development or farming or the like, so um, remnant vegetation areas. And that gives us an indication of what the temperature would, we would expect the temperature to be at a given sampling time um, without any modification to the landscape. And then we compare that to urbanised areas to see what um, change there is. Um, Typically, it will be an increase, uh, and that is the urban heat island effect. The 2021 Dropping Off the Edge report included green canopy and heat vulnerability as categories of disadvantage for the first time, highlighting the growing concern these issues are having on the community. So how are these problems felt by the residents of Wyndham? But now that we've built these houses and we've built all these roads and all these concrete surfaces and these spaces where the heat can be trapped and and all sorts of other issues to do with the urban environment, we do need the trees to mitigate what we've built. That was local resident, activist and president of the Werribee River Association, Lisa Fields. Alongside her work, Fields campaigns for a greener window, believing developers have had too much power and control when developing the area. We're talking about places where people will live where they'll grow up, where they will connect and learn and resonate with other people. And yet we're just putting so much in the hands of developers whose mindset is is money. Both Hurley and Fields believe more needs to be done before rapid expansion continues, believing that both planners and developers need to account for minimum canopy cover standards when designing homes and providing the right soil conditions to allow trees and plants to prosper. One of the points that I try and make really clearly um, when I'm involved in in this kind of area, working with local government, with state government and and, um, developers, is trees are infrastructure. We can do this through making sure there are designated areas um, for what we call a deep soil zone, that is soil which you could actually plant and sustain a tree in. This can be as simple as a setback in the front yard or the backyard. The Victorian government announced in 2021 a $5 million, 500,000 tree initiative to green the West, helping to provide a cooler environment for residents in these areas of low canopy cover. And while that is a start, more pressure needs to be put onto planners and developers to ensure not only public land is suitable for a thriving garden. Jordan Zock for Undercover. And that is episode five of Undercover. I would like to thank my co-presenter Freya O'Donnell and we would like to give special thanks to our reporters Paddy Grinlay, Jordan Zock and Ethan Dean for sharing these stories. I'd also like to thank my co-presenter Amy Ross, our episode producer Chantal Hayden and our executive producers, Bernadette Nunn and Tito Ambio. Be sure to tune in next week for episode six of Undercover.